0: Good to see you today. So very, very grateful that you made time with us together at uh, just God's house to spend time as you think about your weekend and all the things that you have going on. We just appreciate that. If you're a visitor, I want to especially welcome you today. Thank you for making this a part of your weekend. And it's a somber day. We think about the events of 9-11 and it causes us to kind of process in a way that goes, man, that was a very... Um, just all together around world-changing, life-changing kind of day. But today where we're going in our study in the book of Ephesians actually has some of those same implications. And I'm excited today to open God's Word with you and see what He has for us. If you have a worship folder, your notes are in there if you want to get those out. If you have a book Bible, electronic Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in this series called This is a Football, and uh, meant to talk about... The foundational realities that God has for us, getting on the same page with God's objectives for His church—that's what we're doing as we're beginning our new season together. And if you've been with us, we've been working through some things. Hopefully, you're in a home group, and our home groups. If you notice your book, by the way, your book is coming to an end. This last week, you'll be good for this week, and next week we'll be starting out with a brand new. Our kind of our home group books are in thirds, so our next book will begin the following week. So make sure you get a new one, and you're good to go with us, but we're kind of processing through some different ideas. Week one, we talked about introductions, getting to know who the author of the book is, getting to know who this God is we're talking about. We moved to this idea of what it means to be for God to redeem, to buy back slaves and make them his sons. Paul shared, I don't just pray for you Ephesians, this is how I pray for you. And then last week as we were walking through what it means to be saved by grace through faith. These are the themes so far that we've been looking at. And as we're here today in our fifth week in this series, we're moving down further, kind of drilling down in this idea. What does it mean to be in Christ what, what does it mean to live according to whose you are? And, and each week is building on that same foundation towards this goal of us being people who live consistently with who God says we are. That's our goal. That's what we're after. What's what we want to be about. So today we take a, a brand new, a new leap in that direction as we finish out chapter two together. We're, we're going to talk about today this idea, there's a, a new concept of identity Identity is a big theme all throughout Ephesians, and we're going to look at a new concept of what it means to be identified with Christ and identified with each other, and so that be, be kind of ready for where, uh, where we're going today. If I were to ask you the question, what's wrong in our world today? And answers would be all over the place, wouldn't they? We'd have a lot of different things to say. But some of the themes that I would expect to hear back from you would be things like Moral decay. I'd expect things like lawlessness. Everyone's just, uh, you know, going whatever for himself, all, all people for themselves. Divisive racism. I would expect that would be an answer, you might say. Political corruption, rampant violence, addictions galore. These would be some of the things that you would say, this is the problem that we're facing. If you look at all the root issues for every one of these that I've mentioned and the ones that you would mention in addition, you would see that there is an inherent systematic problem in our relationships. Our relationship vertically with God and our relationship horizontally with each other. These are messed up, and then as a result, we have these problems. We were created both to have a relationship with the creator and then to have a relationship with each other in community. That was God's intended purpose. And the problem is when those relationships go awry... Well, all of these things subsequently come. So to understand our world and understand the problem with the relationships that we're in, we realize we need a solution. There's a big problem we face. You don't even have to pick up a newspaper, turn on the news to find out. You actually just look in your own life and you see it. The great news I want to say today is that Jesus is that solution. He was God's intended answer to our problem and the great news is we get to find out more about that idea. So today, if you have notes, let's begin. Number one today, people are naturally rivals with God and with each other. People are naturally in a relationship, in a, in a problem area, of being rivals with God and with one another. This is what I mean by that. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world." All right, so these are are significant words. We're going to see actually today, today's passage begins a little bit like last week. Remember last week we found out that the good news becomes the great news when you know the bad news. And so today kind of begins with the same idea, hey, there was a problem, you were far and away. That was the issue. First off, let's begin. The first word in our passage is the word therefore. And I learned at a young age growing up in church that whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask, What's it there for? Okay, good. So that's, that's a key thing. And so the word therefore pops up as like the summary statement. As a result of all these things, therefore, this is true. Well, the, all these things is what we looked at last week, that we were by nature spiritually dead. We were by nature deserving of God's wrath, but God, because he is full of mercy, full of grace, rescued us, saved us. This is great news. And so as a result of that reality, now this passage begins to, to march out. And what he's doing, what Paul is pushing on today, is he's, he's actually exhorting, he's calling, he's using an imperative verb to call the Ephesian believers to remember something. I found that to, today to be more than coincidental. On a day like 9-11, when our consistent kind of phraseology we use about today is what? We will never forget. Well, Paul says, I want you to think the same way. Don't ever forget who you were. Don't ever forget where you come from, not as though something to sit there and and, and brood over, but to be cognizant of because it always helps you be grateful then in the present because we realize what we came from. Paul says, spend time, take stock, consciously remember who you were and the status that you had Before grace entered into your life, before this Jesus came into the equation. So simple question to process today, who were you? Now it was good in our staff devotions, we had a prayer time uh, Thursday morning and Steve did a great job kind of starting that time by asking the question, who were you? Who were you before this grace of God intersected with your life? And as we went around the room, it was interesting to find out that some of us on our church staff, some of us come from a life that we would say, Yeah, I I did kind of live in the world. I did just kind of do the things that I just knew to do, I thought to do before I knew Christ. And then others of us in the room would say, Man, I grew up in a home when I can't remember not hearing about Jesus. And so just kind of that natural progression of listening to the gospel. Hopefully seeing it modeled and then responding to it. So that other kind of group of people, some of you represent that same category. When we talk about remember who you were, you go, man, at five, what a horrible person. Right? I love this story. I think uh, Campolo shares it of a girl getting up. It's a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. A five-year-old, she couldn't even get to the podium, so she had to stand on a box. And as soon as she does, she spreads out her arms and she goes, for years I wandered in sin. <laughs> and, and you and I get that. Now Now, those of you who have that kind of story, that's a little bit more of where you come from. The interesting thing is we, we talk about remember who you were and you go, well, experientially, I, I knew that I needed a savior. I, I knew at least that. And, and people who struggle sometimes as I put my faith in Christ at a young age, I talk them through a little bit when they're having kind of doubts or concerns. And I say, you did everything you knew you needed to do as a five-year-old. Five-year-olds think very concrete, no abstract, but they realize that there was a God who loved them and there was a way they needed to respond to him. And that was through Jesus. That, that's what a five-year-old can do. And that's appropriate. So within that mix, if you came to Christ very young and, and you kind of are struggling with, well, Todd, I don't have that drug, sex, and rock and roll story. So, so what about my life? What about my testimony? What about remember who you were? And, and I put out two things to you. We talked about a little bit this week as a staff. Number one, if you just take a minute and process who you would be today without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, meaning the things that you are tempted to do and walk in and and the things you've done. Please, please don't walk away today thinking that people put their faith in Christ have lived a squeaky clean life since five. You're grossly mistaken. Sinful challenges have been all along the way. But the reality is, is that, that life unchecked without that conviction of the Holy Spirit, without the truth of God's word, without the grace and power of God to live in step with the Spirit, that's who you would be apart from this great thing that Jesus has done in your life. That's something to take time and process and go, God, thank you. Also, another reality is true. What we're looking at today is not so much Paul saying, remember who you were through your life experiences. He's saying, remember who you were based on your standing." your status, the reality of the world that you grew up in, the world you lived in, apart from the knowledge and the reality of Jesus invading your life. That's who he wants them to remember who they were. So we're talking about rivals today, and that's the, the, con, the, the kind of relationship you're going to see evolve. We even saw it a little bit. Think of the rivalries you've experienced in your life. Like some of them might not be probably nearly as intense as this one we're going to look at between Jew and Gentile today, but it might be like, well, you root for one team and that person who's not a thinker roots for the other, right? (laughs) You know, it's kind of how we usually determine that. It might be the idea that you work for a corporation, a company, and there's a rival company does the same thing, but you're rivals. Maybe you grew up in a home or you as a parent now are watching it, what they call sibling rivalry. You've you've seen these kind of rivalries in your lifetime. And the basic idea is this. It's when two opposing sides are vying for domination or vying for control or vying for attention. That's why a rivalry even begins in the first place. So here in Ephesians 2, we find that the Jews were in a rivalry relationship with basically everybody else. That's kind of what the word Gentile means, is basically everybody else but the Jews, that's an interesting way to see your world. And within it, due to their unique relationship with Yahweh, that, that, that I find this so interesting. And I've talked to people who are what we would call today messianic Jews. So many Jewish by nature, uh, ethnicity, Jewish even by religion, but then put their faith in Christ when they realized he was Messiah. I had some very interesting conversations. And, and I talked to one woman about this and she said, but Todd, we are the people of promise. Let's, let, let's not, on the one hand, be overly critical of a group of people who have a great sense of value uh, in terms of who they are. But then as our conversation kept going on, she said, but the problem is we've taken that and become a people at times of pride rather than become a people of mission. Because to take this unique relationship with God, with the creator of the universe, God always intended, we saw from our very first weekend together in Deuteronomy 4, God had a missional purpose for the people of Israel, to be his chosen people that then in turn would bless the nations. So this group of people, then there's this rivalry though that had kind of become this issue, well, if you're not a Jew, then you are less. Similarly, a Gentile world became oppositional to a Jewish culture. So in this problem, here's what Paul does though in the passage we just read. I think he's actually being sarcastic because here's what he says. You who were by nature, you who were in the flesh, born into a a Gentile reality, okay, you were opposed, you were distant from those who are the circumcision, the Jews who are also made this way in the flesh. So Paul is saying the interesting thing is you're opposed because of your physical bodies and what they represent. Neither of those realities touch the heart. Neither of them are about the soul. They're about what's happened either in the birth, the home you were born into, or what you've done to your body since. But they don't relate to a soulish level. Look at the realities of the rivalry, the division that was there between Gentiles and their Jewish counterparts. From what we've just read about the Gentiles, they were separate from Christ. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They were without hope, they were without God. That is a strong list. And that is a list that, just like last week we look at, we go, "Man, that is the bad news." Consequently, look at the Gentiles. They were unique, a unique covenant people with God. They awaited the Messiah promised to them. They had a unique community based on their citizenship. God had made numerous covenants, promises to them. The Jews had the real hope of heaven, and they worshiped the one true God, not a phony version of Him. So these things created a great divide, created a great rivalry between the Jewish community and the rest of the world that left the Gentiles on the outside looking in. Paul writes to remember this. Take time to to take stock of these realities. And in, in five words, we can summarize the status of someone on the outside looking in. They are Christless. They are stateless. They are bondless. They are hopeless. They are godless. Here's a simple question. Is that any different than who you were? This is true 2,000 years ago when Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, but we look at our own lives and we go, no, this is who I was too. I was those five things before Jesus came and intersected in my life. Remember, Paul says, never forget what you've been saved from. Now, that's not only true of who you were, but this same dilemma is true today for those in your relational world that have not yet put their faith in Christ. It's true for your unbelieving family member. It's true for your unbelieving neighbor. True for your unbelieving boss, your unbelieving coworker, your unbelieving teacher, your unbelieving friend. And the reality is that should do something to us in a sense of urgency to say, God, I want to be a person of Jesus influence in their lives because this is the present reality they're living in. Jesus, use me. It should motivate us and move us to that. So similar to our, our passage last week, we begin with the bad news, but then again, there's these great words of contrast we get to look at right now. But now, look at next in your notes. Number two, Jesus brings peace to our rivalry with God and with each other. Jesus brings peace to our rivalry with God and with each other. Verse 13 of chapter 2, But now, great words of contrast, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Um, Amen. this is good news. Good, good news. We start off first by hearing this word peace. Peace is used three times in this relationship. A lot of you come from a background where you'd even share the gospel using this, this track, this idea, steps to peace with God. Now, that's kind of fascinating because a lot of people I encounter don't think there's a problem in the relationship. I didn't know there was conflict. Why do we need peace? Well, let's unpack that a little bit together today. Biblically speaking, the word peace means this. Harmony, accord. I love this phrase. When all essential parts are joined together. That's when peace is going on in a relationship. The opposite of peace is a relationship you describe with words like drama, right? You describe as something full of strife or conflict. Maybe the idea that we're not on speaking terms or even the phrase that person has been out of my life for X amount of years. Those are relationships defined by the lack of peace. They don't know peace currently. There's not reconciliation, harmony, restoration. None of that's there. Instead, they know conflict. So if I say take a minute and think about a relationship you've had in the past like that, some of us go, Todd, I woke up thinking about that relationship this morning. That's not something long and dusty ago. That's something I'm walking in today. The reality is, is if you can remember maybe the opposite, a relationship that once was defined by a lack of peace, but now has been restored, now has been forgiven and and healed. The interesting thing is, think back to what changed. What was the ingredient that needed to happen for a relationship that was torn for it to be mended? And often you would say it needed some sort of of moment of forgiveness. It needed some sort of act of reconciliation. It needed a conversation. It needed prayer, fill in the blank. But something had to come or else in a sense you couldn't even be in the same room with this person that thing you're talking about, you're thinking of that had to happen, his name is Jesus. See, that's what Jesus does. We have a problem vertically with God and horizontally with each other. At HCC, I constantly got called the best Catholic pastor there because I did this all the time. But, but, but I'm driven to this concept because when, when asked, what does Jesus say? The most important thing in life is to love God with everything you have. And you didn't even ask me what the second is, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical, horizontal pieces of our lives matter more than anything else in terms of our love, in terms of our connection to these people. So the reality is Jesus alone could be our peace. He could provide peace vertically with God because we understood last week, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We could not take care of our own problem. We needed Jesus to do this. That's true vertically. Now horizontally, Jesus comes in and we just read these great words in this passage that in him... In Jesus, we could actually know a horizontal kind of peace with other people that we had not yet experienced. So let's begin. Let's unpack this great news and look at the phrases. What, with Those who were without hope and without God in the world, what a, a desolate place to be in. They've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, as we unpack these relationships, Paul writes and says that these horizontal relationships between Jew and Gentile, there's a barrier, a wall of hostility. What an interesting phrase. We read that phrase and we have to know now 2,000 years ago, Paul wasn't talking metaphorically or just simply just a beautiful word picture. He's talking about a real wall. Take a look at this picture. This was Herod's temple, meaning that Herod built this temple for the Jews, and if you notice, in in the dead center of it is the temple itself, the, the tall building, but then there's these various courtyards. Now, go outside the courtyard one more group, and you see the word sorig there. It's kind of in the word bubble. That wall goes all the way around the temple. Take a look at the next picture. It's a little bit more clear. So you see there the wall of partition, the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, the way that the temple was structured was incredibly clear. You could not miss it. You Gentiles stay there. Don't come inside the wall or we're going to have significant problems. And and as you walk through the whole temple structure, you actually see its layers of exclusion. The Gentiles on the farthest rung out, Once you could get, we don't have time to do all this today, but once you could get past the wall, then there was the court of the women. Then there was the court of the men. Then there was this holy of holy place that no other priest but the high priest even only once a year could go into. That's why when we read in the gospels of Jesus dying on the cross, we see that the curtain that divided the holy of holies from everything else in the temple, when it's torn top to bottom, that's why that picture is so powerful. Everybody has access to God through Jesus. No layers of distinction. We'll get way into this in Ephesians 4. But today, here's just the tip of the iceberg. This is what we're talking about. This was the wall of distinction. Look at this, the next picture. This is what it meant when, when they said we're serious about don't cross this barrier. It's the barricade inscription from Herod's temple announcing death to any Gentile who passed beyond the barrier. They were serious. Don't cross the line. So when he's referring to a dividing wall of hostility, you get it. There was a legitimate wall and it meant to keep people out. So what what Paul is saying now, now that you know that picture, when Paul says that Jesus came to knock that down, that imagery is powerful to you. Because you know that separated people like nothing else. Jesus came to make these two groups one, by destroying the barrier in between them, the hostility that kept them apart. How did he do this? Well, we read the phrase, in his flesh. Set aside, set aside, set asideing, that's not even a word. Setting aside. There we go. <laughs> Setting aside the law and its regulations. He, he dealt with those in his flesh. Now, isn't that interesting? We said earlier, what separated Jew from Gentile? Gentile was born in the flesh Outside of the house of Israel, Jews were made in the flesh. Those of the circumcision, Jesus came and in the same thing that kept people apart, Jesus came and in his flesh at the cross, took care of the hostility between them. I find that so powerful. And Paul is using a very thoughtful approach to walking us through what kept them apart. Jesus solved. In his own flesh, he destroyed the wall that kept them apart. Now, I've told you, I just get so stoked when I read purpose statements in the Bible, words that set it off like so that or because. Today, you actually read the words, his purpose was, like you can't miss this, okay? His purpose was, what? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's a yay God moment. Can we say that together? One, two, three. Yay God. This is good news. Jesus did something that people could never do for themselves, both vertically with their creator and even horizontally with one another. He made one new humanity out of the two. Now today you didn't wake up with the first thought on your brain of going, oh, that Jewish Gentile frustration. <laughs> Constantly at odds in my soul about this. You know I mean? you just don't, and, and if you lived in certain pockets in the world, this would be more of an issue, but it's really hard to kind of get back into the sandals 2,000 years ago and go, how do I really realize what was at stake and why this was such a big deal? It seems almost remedial for us to talk about because today you're like, yeah, Jesus came for the whole world. He came for the Jew to fulfill these promises, but he came for all of us. And in this room today, probably 99% of us are not Jewish. And here's what that's meant to, to, to kind of drive into our heads. Apart from this great news of what Jesus came to do, we were all on the outside looking in. We did not have this heritage We did not have these promises written in the word of God preparing us to look forward. We were just out doing our thing. Jesus came for all of us. And that's just so powerful. I was challenged in seminary to think about the the former covenant, the Old Testament in a unique way. And what I was challenged to do was to go back through my, my Bible and actually Underline and specifically draw attention to the points of where the nation of Israel was actually called to be a missional people. Like I told you, Deuteronomy 4 and other places, even in the book of Deuteronomy, it's always about how are you going to be a a source of, of light to the Gentiles? So as I took that seriously, the next time I read through my Bible systematically, I had my red teacher's pen, right? That felt tip pen. And I just started underlining places in scripture. I got to the book of Psalms and my whole, Bible turned red. Because all over the Psalms are let the nations rejoice. How do they do that unless someone tells them who to rejoice in? That was Israel's role, Israel's call. And so we see that all throughout that thread, all throughout. Well, to me, I I want to highlight one for you today because this was always on the mind of God. It's in your, on your screen, Isaiah forty nine six. Just one of many. It, it's talking, and, and as Isaiah is kind of unpacking, God in a sense giving direction to Messiah. This is what I'm calling you to. He says it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. God's saying that that's an incredible uh, task and mission, but it's too small. Because I have more for you, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That was the purpose of what Jesus came into the world. And so today what seems just so remedial to us, yes, Jesus is the savior of the world. You gotta understand in the first century, this was turning heads. People were scratching their head trying to figure out how can that be and Paul's unpacking this reality so they can see it. There was an obvious hostility. For, for a person being a good Jew, it would not be appropriate for them to even invite you into their home. As a Gentile, you would make the space unclean. That is, that is a degree of rivalry. You have to walk in that a little bit and go, whoa. There was a separation that people did not cross. Paul is saying Jesus came to tear that down, and that's why we keep saying Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is always the hero of the story, and today we see that in vivid color. Look at the way that section finishes. Through him, talking about Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Both Jew and Gentile have access now finally to God through this one spirit. What Jesus came and did at the cross, you need to see this. He didn't say, I'm gonna take someone from one team, as it were, and put you over on this team. It might be like this. Think of it this way: it'd be like someone saying, Uh, here's a player from USC who's gonna come over and play for UCLA. It might be an upgrade, but but you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, SC fans, you're done with me. You're not going to listen to anything else I have to say. Don't go there. Um, but but here, but here, it, it's not that though. It's not it's not coming over and joining a rival. It's actually taking people from both of those teams and putting them on a new team. It was interesting. I was doing a little research. The Minnesota Vikings last year on their 53-man roster had eight players who played for USC or UCLA eight on the same team, former rivals now playing together for the same team. And the illustration would be so much better if the Vikings were any good. You know, that'd be great. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't do much. But, but you get my point, though. Now they're playing for a new common cause. They're in a new family, and they're moving forward in a new way. They were former rivals, and now they're playing for one another on each other's team. That's the picture that's being painted in Ephesians 2, Not just changing one team to another, but a brand new thing. Jesus solved this rivalry, solved this dilemma by making the two one. And you'll notice it's the Holy Spirit that's this avenue. In three of the five messages we've gone through so far in the book of Ephesians, I want to draw your attention that three of the five in each one actually identify all three members of the triune Godhead. We've read about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit today, and we have two other times. Just know that is a powerful emphasis in this book of Ephesians, that the triune God is consistently mentioned and recognized in these different realities and roles that they play in our salvation. And that should be something that brings us to to just uh, this common reminder of going, God, how cool is it? Even though we don't understand all the realities of it, that you are three in one. It brings us to our final point today, number three. To be in Jesus means that we live together in unity. To be in Christ, to be in Jesus means that we live together in unity. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Consequently, as a result of all this, your status has changed, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, With Christ Jesus Himself as our cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Man, these are great words because remember where we started from? You're on the outside looking in, you are excluded from these things, but now in Christ, Look at how everything has changed. Look at some of these phrases prior to, they were Christless, but now they are in Christ. They were stateless, but now they're fellow citizens. They were bondless, but now they are members of his household. They were hopeless, but now they're understood as they too are being built together. They were godless, but now the dwelling in which God lives. Look at the implications of what Jesus does in the mix and how he changes our status, changes our state. This is why Jesus is the hero to the story. We are so lost and apart without him. And as we talk more and more in this book of Ephesians of what it means to be in Christ, of finding our identity in him, this is more and more of what we're gonna look at, how to actually live that out in my life. Now, I found it interesting. Remember week one, when we were kind of laying the foundation of of even the city of Ephesus. What was it like? Remember that we talked about that it had a temple. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And we've actually already talked earlier today, or at least alluded to another temple, the temple that had the dividing wall of hostility, the temple in Jerusalem that the Jews worshipped at. I just find it so much that what was in Paul's mind was to say this. The Jews, you you have a temple that's very, very important to you. But the problem is it excludes people that Jesus came to save. You Ephesian Gentiles, you also have a temple but it represents everything but the God of the Bible. There's a problem with it as well. What does the end of that phrase say? That Jesus came and he actually took Jew and Gentile and was building them together into a new holy temple in the Lord. And I go, how cool is that? They each had a temple they might want to claim. But Paul says, but there's a new temple being built. You're a part of it. And Jesus is the cornerstone. That, to me, is just a really cool word picture. Now, what we're looking at today is very clearly a passage related to kind of the spiritual segregation of Jew and Gentile. There was this wall of hostility. But I want to tell you today that one of the ripple effects, one of the applications of today's message has to go further than Jew and Gentile can now be reconciled and be made into one new humanity, There's more implications than simply the fact that there was a spiritual barrier that's been knocked down, and now we can be, as it were, on the same team in the same family. There's an implication for us because we are still living lives excluding people. We look in America today and we go, man, I I can't, in my lifetime, racism has never had such um, electricity and a ignition as it does right now. And and within that, it's very, very easy to look out the window and to look at all that's wrong and forget to look in the mirror. I want to close today by asking you to do a little bit of that. Stop looking out the window and thinking about your world and think a little bit about you. God, who is it in my life that I'm saying, I know that Jesus came and died to knock down these walls, but I still have a problem. And I know there's so many reasons when I hear why people have exclusion problems with others. And by the way, let me not talk as though everyone out there has this problem and I don't. We all suffer from degrees of saying, I'm keeping you at arm's length. For some of us, it was the way we were raised. We were raised to think poorly, to despise even a group of people. For others of us, somewhere along the process, we had a bad experience with someone and now stereotyped a whole group of people as X. For others of us, we've simply grown up in a world where we think your color is the wrong color. Whatever it may be and why ever we got here, We all have good reasons, as it were, in our own mind to think this is somehow justifiable. But look at this great quote. Stott said it related to this particular passage we're in today. It's in your notes. Look what he said. We cannot tout what Jesus did. We cannot be excited about and laud what Jesus did in tearing down these barriers while we keep perpetuating them ourselves. We dare not be those people who say, Christ died to knock down walls, but I'm pretty happy to keep up mine. That is the height of hypocrisy. So instead we have to ask ourselves the question, I think this plays back to what was Paul's original words today. Remember, don't forget how far away from God you were and out of that, let it bleed into gratitude. Let it cause you to be a person who gives away the kind of grace that God gave you. Look in your notes. Who are you? Who are you, though once excluded from Christ and now included in him, who are you excluding from God's household, as it were? And the question would be, based on what? This is a look in the mirror, not out the window kind of question that I want you just to kind of spend some time on this week. Let it kind of percolate a little bit in your soul. God, there's a lot of problems out the window, but help me first take care of what's staring me back in the mirror. And if I have people that I'm excluding from your family, excluding from your kingdom, because of a bias that I have, God, do a work in me. This is our game plan for this week. Remember that Jesus brought peace to your rivalry with God and with others, that Jesus is the hero of the story. Remember that this week and let that be something that you, in a sense, sit upon and brings you great joy and gratitude because it's meant to. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today looking at a passage that is so rich and full related again to the effect of what Jesus did for us. But God, we don't want to just simply say thank you, Jesus, and go about our own business. Go on our merry way. We want to be impacted. We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. Help us not to be so grateful that you've knocked down walls, but then ourselves be happy to keep them up. And help us to be a people of peace, a people who inject Peace into relationships because of the way that you've modeled that for us in being our peace, both with God and with each other. You're here today and no matter how many times you've heard the good news of Jesus or how few, the reality is is that you're alert enough in your own soul to say, I've never really responded to Jesus yet. He's not my peace. I can't say that with certainty. I want to tell you The great news for you is that you can make that change right here, right now. You need not wait for some moment. You need not be in some certain environment. You can do business with God right now using that lens of the ABCs. A is to admit. Admit that you are in a a wrong relationship with God. You're a sinner. That's the problem. And B, believe that this Jesus we've talked about today Believe that he actually can make you right. He can solve the conflict and the problem you have vertically with God. Believe he's the only savior available and see, choose. Choose to say today, I'm gonna walk in his steps and live his life, a life of peace in my world. Father, we wanna be your people this week. Help us not only remember what you've done for us, but help us be people knocking down walls in our lives. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.